0: so it's funny. Last week, I was all hyped up. I was all excited that John Senna or Cena, I don't know, the wrestler dude that's in every movie known to mankind, was following me on the Twitter, and then Dan Nathan decided to one-up me yeah. and say, I'll see your John Senna, and I'll raise you an Endomican Sue." So I stand in awe of your Twitter prowess, Dan Nathan.
1: Yeah, to, to be very fair, Guy, you and I had a great conversation with Donakin last week. He is... I didn't know this. I mean, he's a five-time Pro Bowler. I didn't know that. I know he won the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. I did not know that one of his pet projects is financial literacy, financial markets literacy. He's also an investor in private markets here. So we had a great conversation with him. It's really interesting to see people who are so successful in other areas kind of dip their toe in the markets. And he's a smart guy, man. So hopefully he will join us on the tape. And yeah, I think he's a little bit more exciting of a follow uh, than John sent on the Twitter. Well, I don't know about that. I'm just going to say. I don't know about
0: that. But listen, since we're on the eve of the NFL season, Danny Moses, I know you have some thoughts. If you give me a team that nobody's looking at, Danny Moses, I know you do this, you do your work. Is there an under-the-radar NFL squad that you should let our folks here on the tape know about? I have mine, by the way.
2: They're only under the radar because of where they are, Buffalo Bills. But I looked, and the odds are pretty fair, I think, for them to win the AFC and the Super Bowl. They're like the third or fourth choice. The one team I'm looking at is the Chargers. And I think no one's expecting anything from them. I think Herbert's probably the best young quarterback in the NFL They have a ton of talent, and I haven't looked at those odds, but they could come out of that division. division. I agree
0: with you. You know, It's funny you say that because that's the exact team I was thinking of as well. I I actually think the Packers might wind up finding a way back to the Super Bowl and sort of Aaron Rodgers' penultimate year, if not his final season, and I I think you're right. I think the Chargers got a lot of horses. They just haven't figured out how to win. This is going to be the year. But you are listening, folks, to On the Tape with the great Dan Nathan and the equally great Danny Moses. We do have a lot to talk about. Obviously – we're taping this on the eve of a jobs number that i think is going to be extraordinarily important but as we've learned the market doesn't seem to care about much of anything these days as the market continues to go higher nft's seem to be a thing obviously ethereum catching a bid as is the bitcoin and danny moses was so spot on on carvana last week that we're going to revisit it this week but you know just getting into it i look at the markets and it's amazing to me that you have a vix below 16 giving all the geopolitical things going on, all the headwinds this market faces, we're making new highs seemingly every day. I find myself continually scratching my head, but in the in the eve, in the wake, in the ethos, I guess, of passive investing, I
2: guess nothing does matter except money flows. Every once in a while, you get moment of clarity. And I had one last night. I was attending the Whalers concert, actually. It was pouring outside, but I went to see the Whalers. And your mind can kind of drift at a concert like that a little bit, and
1: I- Wait, 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 hold on. So wait, wait, Bob Marley's Wailing Wailers?
2: Yep, yep, yep. Wow. They're, a- they're actually up for a Grammy this year. The drummer is the son of the original drummer. There's some they were amazing. But anyway, I know we have the same conversation every week. Oh, what's happening? Oh, the market's open. Why is it up? Because it's open. It's gonna end. And I'm starting to see more and more signs that it will. I don't know exactly when. I think it's much sooner than, than people think. And I think that this jobs number is probably one of the more important I mean it is what it is. It'll come and go and the market will react and it'll the market's efficient or figure it out. But this does set the table for jobs number tomorrow, the September meeting for the Fed, which is in three weeks. You get the dot plot that day. Right now, the market's pricing and rate hikes in early 2023. Dot plot, dot plot. And the yield curve's starting to flatten a lot. And so I all these things are lining up. Something's got to give. And you're starting to see, obviously, the Morgan Stanley report, which we can talk about taking down GDP number, leads back to one thing, guys, and that's stagflation. And if there is a stagflationary moment in this market, it's going to get crushed. And listen, we're going to talk about some of these frauds later, but there's a lot of frauds out there in this in this market right now. A lot of adjusted EBITDA. Anyway, I can go
1: on and on, but I, I'm starting to get this moment of clarity. So wait, it sounds like you had an epiphany, an epiphany at a Whalers concert. Was that second degree smoke, Danny, or, or what's going on here? Because no, they don't uh, allow it indoors. Oh, all right, fair like enough. That. All right. Yeah. So so here's one thing I'll say is that we're taping this on September second. September second is the one year anniversary of last year's sell off. Remember, we've talked about this a couple of times here. You know, August we had the soft bank whale buying all the calls and the major mega tech tech stocks were just kind of skipping higher and higher and everyone was kind of scratching their heads asking what's going on september 2nd the month starts we open up we reversed lower. And from there, we had a 14% peak to trough decline. It felt like a straight line. It really took about three weeks here. And obviously, you know, it took a couple months to kind of make a new high here. When you talk about the level of complacency we have, it's very similar in a lot of ways. And I read a stat in David Rosenberg's weekly report talking about the SP 500 up more than 100% from its March 2020 lows. And it was talking about how 75% of that gain is multiple expansion, while 25% of it is actually earnings growth. And it got me thinking a little bit. So we mentioned that historically, you'll see in that sort of rally off of a a historic low, a 55% multiple expansion to 45% earnings growth. And then you think about where rates are, and you think about all the fiscal stimulus that we have. To me, that also speaks to a little bit of what you're talking about, Danny, that something has to give fairly soon. What it really means is that we need a correction. We need a little bit of a fear to come into this market because you cannot have multiples go unabated like that for this long without some sort of fear put in the market. And I just suspect that September, the month that we're in right now, is going to be very similar to what we had last year at this time. Another football reference,
2: unabated to the quarterback. When this sentiment does turn this time and the tide goes out just a little bit and you see what's laying there in the sand, there is a lot of negative stuff there. There'll be more reasons to sell than to buy. What is the reason to, quote, buy the dip? And I'm, ta- I'm not talking about a 1% to 2% dip. I'm talking 5%, 7 8 10% type dip. And I'm telling you, I, I have, we have reached the point now where a guy that came by to fix a roof tile because this house is a disaster told me that he's been buying AMC on Robinhood. He has call options on GME. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, they just go up. And just, Those are the type of things that you're seeing. We've reached kind of the end. We saw the Robin Hood account growth slow. But I got to tell you guys, this NFT thing, I did spend time after we talked last week. I looked at these things, these crypto punks, these bored apes, these pudgy penguins, all this stuff. That's it, guys. I mean, <laughs> this is the effing end. It is the end of something. It's the end of this euphoria. And this There's too much money in the system. And then when it starts to get wasted, and yes, wasted on things like that, it's insane. So- We're we're very close.
0: No, I agree with you. And you mentioned doing something in the sand. I don't know what the hell you were talking about, but it made me think about (laughs) Neil Young's Cowgirl in the Sand. And the name of the album in 1969 was Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. And I know this is nowhere, and I know how this is going to end, Danny. Just to play devil's advocate, though— doesn't seem to matter. Nobody seems to care. I mean, you talked about unabated to the quarterback. Well, it's an unabated move seemingly to 5,000 in the S&P 500. I have thought about a 100 different things that can derail this. None of them have come to fruition. I know you can't predict the black swan or the event that will, but what do you see
2: out there that could potentially take this thing down? I don't know if it's one thing. Like I said, I think a precipitous sell-off will make people take a look at what is going on in the broad picture. I mentioned Tether before. We've talked about it before as what could be an event, a black swan type thing that could roll the markets. I believe, and Dan made a point to say, I mean, crypto, I think, is more tied now to the market than it has been. And when you see stuff like the NFT stuff happening, those are people that are taking their money out of Robin Hood, I believe, and starting to buy some of this stuff. And that's money that if that's lost, that obviously has an impact on the stock market. But I just think that this tether thing where they got an injunction here recently to prevent from a freedom of information act that the attorney general of new york had basically the paperwork on what truly is backing this what is made up of these quote u.s dollars and coindesk who does their job because they provide information to the market was just trying to find out and they blocked it why what secret sauce is there to say that we have u.s dollars backing it what secret banks are they using so that story to me is going to get a lot more press over the next and again it always happens every cycle. Until the market goes down, these things, they, then they start compounding on themselves. And the, the headlines change from Fed pumping liquidity into the market to another fraud discovered at XYZ. So I just think it's going to be a culmination of a lot of things. I don't know what it's going to
1: be. It's interesting that you mentioned Tether, a stable coin, and then you mentioned this rampant speculation in NFTs. And, and I guess the question is more for the NFTs is there more productive places for that capital to go to? You just mentioned that it might have come from Robinhood. Well, if it came from Robinhood, that means it came from the government. It was a government transfer from last year. So if all of this was just money that was invented over the last 18 months and it just found its way into some cryptocurrencies and then some cryptocurrency-based JPEGs of art, that sort of thing, well, to date, Right now, you know, with Ethereum, you know, kind of close to 4,000, not far from its all-time highs of 4,500, and then Bitcoin right below 50,000, still down from 64,000, it's high in April. You know, we know that those two cryptocurrencies make up, I don't know, 80, 90% of the entire space here, you know. I'm not sure that that capital came out of the stock market or came out of the real estate market. It might have literally been created out of thin air. And then all of a sudden now, we have tons and tons of these crypto millionaires. Now, that being said, I keep hearing this from some very sober people who believe in the crypto trade, that it's also a huge mechanism, at least NFTs are in particular, a huge mechanism for money laundering right now. So, Danny, to your point, maybe there's something bigger going on with Tether. Maybe there's some really funky stuff going on with these NFTs, maybe some sort of downturn that we saw like in the spring, you know, from the April highs to the recent lows of 50%, maybe that would correspond with some sort of profit taking and other risk assets to me, but I'm not sure that it's crypto that leads the way.
2: I understand. I just would rather own a tulip for $10,000. At least I get like a weak use out of it than a pudgy penguin, but that's that, That's fine. The other thing going on in the market, I think, and I, you know, speaking of gambling and, and odd sports and things like that, I went to look, I said, what are the Republicans odds right now of winning the house. And it's minus 260. You have to bet $260 to win $2.60 to win a dollar. Everyone to look at it. And obviously, I think that has a, whatever reviews are politically is one thing, but it has a positive view on the market when you think about tax hikes and capital gains and things like that. So That's starting to price its way in. And I think the more that the Biden administration steps on its own toes, continues. Well, hold on. I I just want
1: to say one thing, Danny. The midterms are in November 2022. This is, in political terms, this might as well be a decade. I'm just saying, like, the fact of the matter is is that we might have very different views of of the way the Biden administration handled this pullout of Afghanistan, the way that they've handled the just kind of the the pause in vaccinations. I mean, those are the main stories. I think the bigger story is about the economy, you know, right now. I mean, I don't think that there's anyone pricing tax hikes coming anytime soon, not between now. And it really is like, okay, what's going on with the economy? You mentioned that Morgan Stanley report. Danny, we've seen the GDP now, the Atlanta Fed GDP now, we've seen that come down dramatically for the current quarter that we're in. And it looks like that some of the some of the other data, consumer confidence and stuff, we're seeing a weakening of this economy right now.
2: So the Atlanta Fed at various times has
1: been like with a focal
2: point of what people look at because they have outrageous numbers. And I know they're not making them up. They're actually trying to compile them. They are off a lot. And maybe they're right or wrong. I, I don't know. But I but remember, isn't the
1: direction the main point here? I mean, it started at high single digits. Oh, yeah, no, two, I, you're not getting an and, argument for me yeah, that we're, yeah.
2: that we're, that we're going to slow down. But let me just close the loop on the election stuff. The market is a discounting mechanism. But damn, I think you got to pull it back to, OK, if I was thinking there was going to be capital gains increases and maybe there will be, but it'll be reversed. And, and so so people are going to think that now. That's what I'm saying in terms of how the market's pricing that in. But, you know, we'll see. Numbers are coming down. And again, I think we potentially headed towards maybe some type of stagflation. And that would be very dangerous for this market.
0: You mentioned the flattening yield curve. Let's just talk about that. Because when I think you look at it, a lot of people look at 10s, 30s. You look at 530s, 5-year versus 30-year spread. I mean, that maxed out, I think, about 145 basis points-ish. they are down about 115 basis points now, which is a pretty serious move in a pretty short period of time. Maybe the market's not taking that in consideration, Danny, or maybe it just doesn't care because when you see Visa invest in one of these things, Dan, you've talked about it for a while, one hundred and fifty grand just doesn't matter. It's just everybody in the pool. And now, when you have major corporations getting involved to that magnitude and that scale, it just speaks to an environment where, all assets maybe can go higher. Maybe
1: Tom Lee is right. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. There's a lot of talk about DeFi, decentralized finance, a lot of fintech activity going on. I know Danny has some stuff to say about that. You know, I was kind of struck me. I was looking at some charts earlier today, and Visa and MasterCard, these were two massive pillars of the bold market here. These two stocks have rolled over here. They are down, I think, between 10 and 15% from their recent highs here. We're seeing American Express also down, I think, high single digits from its recent highs. And that might be speaking to some of the pushouts that we're seeing because of Delta. Business travel has been pushed out. A lot of return to of the office is pushed out. So this kind of feeds into that narrative about Q3, Q4, not really being the kind of acceleration point for the post-pandemic economy. And I think there's other ways to kind of think about just some of the, the airlines can't get out of their own way. The casino stocks can't get out of their own way. The cruise ships can't get out of their own way. So there's lots of parts of the market that are saying something very different than the Major indices that are really within all time highs right here. So obviously, Dan just spoke about Visa and Mastercard. We had the Square
0: news a couple of weeks ago. We also had the Amazon Affirm news. All fintech, fintech, fintech. But. Apparently, it's something called BNPL, Mr. Beebles or something. Danny, I know you have some thoughts on this. Maybe you want to do a little rip off the tape for me on this
2: buy now, pay later phenomenon. Yes, guy. I'll do a little rip. It's not going after the sector per se, but let me just start out by saying it's not fintech. It's lending. So it's also called point-of-sale financing, pay over time. The problem is, as a consumer, obviously, it's easy to click and pay. And some of these have zero interest rates. You pay it back over a couple weeks. And these companies make money by the merchants that are actually – it's almost a factoring business for these guys. So it is a good business. And Max Levkin, who started PayPal – started this company or firm and it's been going on since twenty thirteen. So it's not really new, but it's really catching on. And I think it's part of the reason that Visa MasterCard have been under a little a little bit of pressure. But basically they do soft credit checks. These are low FICO type consumers. The average loan size is you know seven, eight hundred dollars. The average APR is eighteen percent. The government's kind of watching out right now and trying to protect to protect the consumer from themselves on this because there were late fees, for instance, that PayPal had to get rid of and things like that. So you've had square enter the space, but you know, the pending acquisition of Afterpay for 29 billion, this affirm is around a $25 billion valuation right now that jumped, obviously after their deal with Amazon, Apple and Goldman are launching Apple pay later. PayPal launched Pay in 4, Discover, Invested in Sizzle. I can go on and on. But Credit Karma is already tracking this space. And a lot of these users have already, 38% have already missed at least one payment. And that's what can get you into trouble. It actually can have a negative impact on your credit score, even though they don't pull a hard credit report for you to get approved. So listen, people are are buying stuff they probably can't afford, but think they can afford over a period of two, three months. And it's going to cause issues, just like the end of every cycle unintended consequences, great now. So, and if you look on the balance sheet of a firm, like just read the report, it's obviously a good company, but it's very capital intensive and they keep a lot of these loans on balance sheet. This thing is basically a bank. And they use a bank to also offload some of those loans. It's Cross River Bank, I think, backed by KKR. And so you're seeing a lot of growth in like Web Bank out of Utah and Cross River because that's the source. That's where the banking licenses are coming from as the front to all these companies. So something to keep your eye on. You know, I I think it's going to be in the news a lot, certainly if credit turns. And I will tell you, like there was already a time last year during COVID when a firm had to take a massive charge because obviously there was late payments that were never made. So anyway, it's not fintech, guys. It's it's just lending, and it's you know I'm not saying it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, but it's something similar. So
1: pretty interesting that you know that headline dropped um, at Amazon and Affirm on a Friday afternoon, and Affirm you know was up what thirty forty percent like that. And you know at the time of the Square Afterpay deal, and in Square you know had what a hundred twenty billion dollars market cap, and they were paying twenty nine billion dollars in stock for this company that no American investor had ever heard of. They're out of um, Australia. I would just remember thinking, oh that's kind of weird. That they didn't think about a firm at the time, which had like a $14, 15000000000 billion market cap. But the thing that I find most interesting about Amazon is that they decided to partner with a firm rather than to buy them. They already have a buy now, pay later function on high end products. And so I think the people in Amazon are like, we don't want to be a bank. We're happy to have this association with a brand like a firm that has more than 4 million customers and maybe there's some crossover, that sort of thing. So I I thought the most interesting thing was that Square passed on a firm and then Amazon didn't buy a firm. They just partnered with a
0: firm. And I'll tell you what else is interesting. I'm not a big believer in uh, what's that word? Coincidence when things happen. It just doesn't seem to be causality. But all I know is last week, Danny Moses, you went ripping off the tape on Carvana. And I believe if memory serves, and it typically does, the stock was around $354 or thereabouts. As we do this today, the stock is about Ten percent lower. Now, call it coincidence, I don't know, but what I will tell you is you've done some more homework on the Carvana. So
2: kudos to you number one, and take it away, Danny, Number two. I was blown away, so I, yes, I've dug deeper, and I should have known this, and I don't know why, and I'm sure a lot of my friends and peers did know this. But let me back up. Ernie Garcia the second is the father of Ernie Garcia, the third. Ernie Garcia the second owns this drive time, which was where Carvana spun out of. Drive Time originally was a company called Ugly Duckling. Ugly Duckling, I've talked about it on the show, was one of the stocks that Steve Eisman and Meredith Whitney came to the podium as analysts when I was a salesman and said, the following eight stocks are going to zero. There was a subprime auto credit issue in 1998, and this was one of the casualties of that ugly duckling. And so I went back and looked more, and I know everyone knows this already, so I apologize for my ignorance. But he was also partners with Charles Keating from the SNL crisis. That was his biggest backer. I mean, convicted of bank fraud. You start to go back and look. But here's the most interesting thing I've seen. He hasn't sold stocks since August 23rd, Ernie Garcia II. Why is that interesting? Stock has gone down since that date. That doesn't make sense, does it? Insider selling finally stops and the stock, no. Maybe he has information on something. I don't know if he does. This guy has sold hundreds of millions of dollars of stock cumulatively every single day that you can go look out. I went to do the insider sale breakdown. It's 12 pages long for 2021. It's every single day that the market's open. Why isn't he selling? So anyway, it's clear now. The story's kind of getting out there. I'm so happy to move off of Tesla for a little bit and find something else. But anyway, the... This thing has more hair this is going to be good. Charles Keating, by the way, wasn't
0: that Robin Williams character in Dead Poet Society? I mean, it's amazing how he was able to go from used cars to Dead Poet Society. (laughs) It's really remarkable, Dan Nathan. Listen, Dan, I know you have some thoughts on some other things that we've been seeing, specifically out of our great friend Carter Braxton Worth.
1: Oh, yeah. This tweet last week, it got me all geeked up. I think he put it out on Friday and it was for the month of August. We've made 10 new intraday all-time highs in the S&P 500. That hasn't happened. In the month of August, since 1987, the record of intraday all-time highs in the month of August is 11th, which happened in 1929. I think we had 12 new all-time highs in August of 2021 here. And I'll just say this, guy. On August 19th, I had that little thing. You and I were on the set at Fast Money. It was you, me, and Mel. I got all kind of geeked up here. I don't know why. I just bought a bunch of puts and a bunch of stuff. And I was like, listen, listen, the higher we go in August is the lower we're going to go in September. I just kind of feel it in my bones here. And, you know, I, I see stats like that. And when you see 87 and 29 and guy, you traded both of those markets here. <laughs> it's it was, it was, interesting. It was, I was a neophyte in 29,
0: but I was a, I was really a, a seasoned vet in 87. Yeah.
1: yeah and you did in 29, you were like on a ledge in 87. You were just at the bar, you know, like hanging out because you knew that the things will come back. I just kind of feel like, you know, up twenty. 20% of the year with the VIX, like you said, sub-16, with all this NFT stuff going berserk, with rates not getting out of their own way. I think, Danny, you've been talking about the stagflation thing. You just mentioned it. Maybe that is the thing. Maybe we are just locked in this period where Guy thinks that the Fed is painting themselves in a corner. Danny thinks that we're never going to see the sort of growth that one would expect after all this fiscal and monetary stimulus and after the, the huge, basically depressive economic action that we had forced on ourselves over the last 18 months. Maybe we just find ourselves in this really weird spot and maybe the just massive speculation we're seeing in risk assets that just didn't exist during the financial crisis. Maybe that's the thing that's ringing the bell to your point, Danny. Literally
2: didn't exist. They just make them up as we go along. We were creating stuff literally out of thin air. It's really amazing. It was the song Concrete Jungle that get, where I had my epiphany last night. I believe that's what it was. I don't know why. But something, something about craziness, concrete, New York City, things going to turn into a jungle. I don't know what's going on.
0: Were you the only one there? Who is this concert? The The whalers, mm-hmm.
1: the highwaymen?
2: Well, help me out here.
0: All
1: right, but hold on one second. This is the most boomer like uh, uh, like segment we've ever had because Guy Adami actually went to a Pink Floyd cover band last night. So Guy was at a Pink Floyd cover band in New Jersey, and wow. Danny Moses was at the whalers, like some iteration of the whaling whalers up in Connecticut, and I don't even know what I was doing. I was eating some shit shellfish out in greenport and just in the rain and drinking budweiser out of a can that Well, was that's my, the
0: world we live sure. in right now fellas listen when yeah. we come back we're going to hear from a new member of the risk reversal media team He's, ned michaels is going to join us on the tape and after we hear from ned we're going to interview the great meg terrell who's reporting over the last 16 months has been award worthy stick around <laughs>
1: Hey everyone, it's Dan here. If you like On The Tape, you'll love Trading Spaces. Guy and I do it every Monday and Wednesday live on Twitter Spaces. We break down the biggest market moving headlines of the day and take your questions. We're also joined by some pretty cool guests, so check it out. All you have to do is follow at underscore Trading Spaces on Twitter and sign up for our email reminders at riskreversal.com. That's every Monday and Wednesday live at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitter. Brought to you by CME Group. So somebody
0: slipped into my DMs, and it was this good-looking dude, went to Vanderbilt, plays golf. His name is Ned Michaels, and we got to talking, and he's an aspiring journalist. Not aspiring, he happens to be a very good one, and we thought we could come up with a podcast. So over the course of the last few months, we've sort of hashed on some names, and we've come up with Breaking Even with Ned Michaels. So I want to introduce Ned Michaels to Danny Moses. Dan Nathan has already met him. We're also introducing Ned to our on-the-tape family, and the risk-reversal media family. Ned Michaels, how are you today?
3: Gentlemen, thanks for having me. I am excited about breaking even, excited to be uh, on y'all's platform, talking golf and all kinds of uh, real estate and financials, things that I love to do, and some of them I'm really, really terrible at, but that's what you all are here for.
0: Well, it's interesting. We actually had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, Ned, and you know, it dawned on, I think, both of us that the conversation we were having would actually play to a broad audience. And I think Danny Moses probably fashions himself a bit of, of a golfer, although I'm sure he's a hack, but Danny, you're going to be able to, uh, so opine, I would think more on the gambling portion that golf, the golf and the gambling worlds have collided in a major way over the last couple
2: of decades. Absolutely. I mean, the data that you can get from golf. And I think IMG, if I'm not mistaken, that I think owns the data, all the golf scores and history and the gambling on golf is incredible because you get to gamble between shots. That's why everyone loves real in-game live wagering on baseball because you got time between pitches. That makes the game more exciting. And golf is just all of that and more. And so I'm assuming the breaking even is a play on, you know, breaking 80 and then getting even on gambling. Is that right?
3: I guess let me back up a little bit. And Guy, he kind of told the story and then uh, he didn't quite finish it. Is He had a really nice looking golf shirt on on one of the many appearances he makes on television. And so I DM'd him said, hey, great shirt, love it. So we started talking. And so from the golf world, I played professionally, European tour, one on the Asian tour, and had some injuries that unfortunately forced me into early retirement. I taught at a very high level for a couple of years and then got into commentary work. So I do work for CBS from the Masters, if you watch their masters.com coverage, ESPN as well, and PGA Tour Live. So that was the golf side of it. And then, like a lot of people during COVID, uh, I started playing around with the stock market, TD Ameritrade account, these kind of things. And for a while there, you couldn't lose. But then I started to lose. And so I would reach out to guy and just say, hey, I'm thinking maybe this and that. And he, I wasn't asking for financial advice, but just overall advice. And so that was the genesis of the show. So the show is going to be golf-centric. It, that's going to be the common denominator. But then it's also going to lean on you all and your help so that maybe I don't lose as much money or make just awful decisions. And then the last part of it is going to be a gambling component. And I myself am not a huge gambler. I love to pick the players and hypothesize who's going to play well, but I'm going to bring in a gambling specialist who that is what he does. And he's going to be able to tell you who to pick and why to pick and the odds that you should be betting on. So Danny, uh, if that's what you're interested in, I'll make sure that uh, we always lead in with Danny Moses. Pay attention because here comes our picks. I'm trying to
2: pay attention because I'm watching right now the tournament on TV right now down at East Lake, and I have bets all over the place. So I'm trying to see how far I'm down at this point. All
3: right, here's a perfect example. Okay, I'm not going to tell you who to bet. You're going to have to do your own research. Our yep. gambling expert will tell you. But you were mentioning all this high-level quantitative data. So there are guys now on tour who the only job they have is to advise the players on data. So here's a perfect example. So Eastlake in Atlanta, where they're playing the tour championship this week, my sources who I've spoken with, who they provide the data and the elements that you need to do well at a tournament to finish in the top 10, potentially win. And at Eastlake, you have to hit fairways. You have to be good out of the bunkers and you have to be a good mid-range putter. So call it kind of eight to 12 feet, not necessarily four to six feet, but eight to 12 feet. So when you're doing your analysis, those are the three things that if you're picking a player... Those are the three elements that you have to do to play well at Lake.
1: So, Ned, taking a step back here, um, you slid into Guy's DMs. Guy hit me up. Wait a second, what was that? I what don't like the way saying? you say that. I mean, by I way. don't like the way you the way I said it is funny. The way you said it is creepy. Guy <laughs> hits me up and said there's this guy Ned Michaels, and he did say something about him being really good looking, which I, I'm not sure in this medium it really matters. You know, guy, you migrated towards the audio because you've been hearing this for years and years that you have a real face for radio and it's really kind of played out here pretty well. But you said I'm not sure exactly what to do but I'm I think there's something there to do because we started talking about markets he started talking about how he was trading options not particularly well He's talking about the gamification of all of this stuff that lives in his world right now. You were involved in real estate, and that started going ballistic, right, during the thing. And then there was no sports, and you saw a lot of your friends who were in sports kind of migrate towards markets. And this is a theme that we've been talking about on the tape since we launched um, in January. So we're really excited about it. So thinking about the format here, you're going to each week... You're going to start out, you're going to talk about golf. You're going to bring in a really interesting sort of person from the kind of golf field. You're going to talk about the goings on in the space then you're going to kind of move into a segment where you're really focused on what is that upcoming event and how can you handicap it and think about kind of the state of play that, that's going to go on during that tournament. And then we're going to do a segment. And this is where we kind of have to enlist Guy and Danny, the on the tape crowd here. We're not sure what we're going to call it yet, but each week, one of the three of us are going to partake in a conversation about something related to business or markets or something and something that's on your mind, right, Ned? And, and-
0: yeah, I thought Saving Par would be a great name for a segment. And that's something to Danny deals with literally on every hole that he's at so saving par would be good but listen to Dan's point I think we enlist the audience and if you have a better idea please can they also slide into our DMs yes Danny what up and down Up and down. Look at you. Up and down. See, that's why we do these things. That's why we brainstorm. Danny Moses. Danny, can you do your voice
2: just an up and down with Danny Moses? Can you do that? Let's welcome Ned Michaels, front stage. Going to launch a podcast on here, Breaking Even. Welcome, Ned.
3: Dan, I have a question for you, and this falls into our Breaking Even platform. First of all, the the best performing stock in my entire portfolio, my eight-year-old daughter picked, Build-A-Bear. It's up 600 and something percent. But how come I stink at options? Like I bought $1,000 worth of American Eagle Outfitters uh, about a week and a half ago, and now they're worth absolutely nothing.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that you said this earlier about, you know, when you entered the stock market during the pandemic, it was just kind of all systems go, right? It was hard to lose money. And I think that a lot of new entrants to the market are using the options market in particular for leverage. They know that they can define their risk to the premium that they're willing to pay. But a lot of the mechanics is the way options trade. They take a little time. It takes reps, right? Because you could buy an option, a call option on a stock, right? And the stock could just kind of be inching up slowly and it looks like it's going higher. But your calls that should appreciate if the stock goes higher are losing money, right? So they're decaying every day if they're not realizing the sort of vol levels that are implied in the price of the option. So. This is something that we spend some time on on the tape, and hopefully we'll spend more on breaking even. It's just kind of like a little financial literacy. There's a lot of new entrants to the market. There's some tricks to the trade. I know that you know Guy Adami, Dan, Danny Moses, they've been trading the stock market for a long time, but there are certain products that if you don't have a lot of experience trading, you're going to lose money even if you're a pro. And that's why I think it makes so much more sense um, to kind of really spend some time, learn about what you're trading, and we're going to do that um, in our segment on breaking even. That's good.
2: Hey, Ned, can I ask you, where are you trading that? Is that Robinhood?
1: TD Ameritrade.
2: Oh, TD Ameritrade. Okay.
3: Yeah. And I am a pro at not making very good selections, by All the right. way. All right. Perfect.
2: <laughs> well, you now know more than 99% of the people that trade on Robinhood. So congratulations on that.
3: I genuinely looking forward to those conversations, yeah. though, and just getting a better education in general.
2: Well, I got a question for you, Ned. I believe you are launching this podcast right around the Ryder Cup, which is great, because I think the Europeans, as much as I don't want them to, are going to dismantle the Americans. Can you tell us why it's so self-centeredness of the you know American players versus the team camaraderie of the European players? I actually enjoy watching the Europeans play actually a lot more. Give me your thoughts on that, if you don't mind.
3: You know, having played the European tour for a number of years and obviously played in America, I can tell you that it is camaraderie is the word. It's the cohesiveness in the European locker room that has been in the past, at least the modern past, uh, the difference. And the main thing is when you start looking at the American tour, the PGA tour, I mean, they're playing for so much, but it's also when you go to a city, for example, Eastlake Tour Championship, there are a multitude of places to stay. There are hotels, there are private houses. So everybody just kind of scatters. Where on the European tour, you're playing at these isolated cities a lot of time in big resorts. And so inevitably you end up eating together. Uh, you end up playing practice rounds together. Your wives may be there, so you get to know each other in that level. And so there's just a little bit tighter bond, especially if you look back towards the, the days of Seve Ballesteros and Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer. They were the ones who were the genesis of what the European tour has become and the European side of the Ryder Cup. And you've got guys who are skipping the Olympics this year because they wanted to put themselves in a better position to make the European Ryder Cup team or to even be playing better when they get to the Ryder Cup. So, it is for the most part the end all be all. And I'm not saying this is not for the Americans. Well, before we get out of here, Ned, speaking of Bernard and Sevy, I
0: have a question for you. You may know the answer to this. I'm sure Danny does. If you're American when you go into the bathroom, Ned, and if you're American when you leave the bathroom, Ned, what are you
3: in the bathroom? Come on. I have a 12 year old boy and an eight year old girl. You are a peeing. European, You're a European, baby. Yes, you are. And that's the type of
0: tomfoolery. And and high brownness that we're going to get when we listen to your podcast, I'm sure. We're looking forward. Welcome to the Risk Reversal family. It was great having you on the tape with us. We're looking forward to breaking even with Ned Michaels, maybe up and down as a segment, maybe saving par as a segment. We're looking for the audience to give us some help. But Ned, thanks for
3: joining us today. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it.
0: Meg Terrell is CNBC's senior health and science reporter. Since joining CNBC in April of 2014, Meg has covered the development of new medicines for Alzheimer's, cancer, and rare diseases, and tracked public health emergencies from Ebola to Zika to the COVID-19 pandemic. Prior to joining CNBC, Meg covered the biotechnology industry for Bloomberg News, where she also contributed to Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Businessweek. Meg also has a weekly podcast called The Read Out Loud, breaking down the latest news, digging deep into industry goings-ons, and giving you a preview of the week to come. Last week, CNBC released their documentary called A Race Against COVID-19. Meg, it's wonderful to have you on the tape. Let's go back in time. It's January 2020. If I had told you then all the things are going to take place over the next 16 months, and I said, are you prepared to be a journalist in this environment? What would your answer have been?
4: I would not have believed you that this would have gone on for so long. I remember hearing about this mysterious pneumonia in China at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in January. It was like the second week of January 2020. And I remember thinking, like, is this going to be as crazy as covering ebola back in 2014 and like now it's just laughable to even make that comparison because like ebola was very scary and it rocked the markets and cnbc was covering it really closely and i like flew overnight to dallas when the the patient from liberia landed there and stayed there for like three days and it was like a month of just like crazy coverage but it's obviously nothing like this. And I wouldn't have believed the vaccines could have been ready so quickly. There's just a lot about this year. I wouldn't have believed most of all that we'd still be in this. And now that feels naive that I didn't realize it would last this long.
0: Yeah. But I've said on air, I've written about it. I've said to you offline that the work you've done has been extraordinary. And that's the word I'm choosing to use. So what did prepare you for this? Because this has been, you know, what's the old expression, you know, drinking through a fire hydrant. I mean, that's where the news comes fast and furious. Yet on your own, Obviously, you have some help on the production end, but on your own, you've been able to take all this information and make it digestible to an audience who had never heard of 90%
4: of this stuff. Well, thank you. I mean, I do have an amazing set of producers I get to work with. Leanne Miller, who you guys know from Fast Money, I get to work with every day. She and I got together doing our weekly biotech segment on Fast Money years ago, and I just love her so much. And Harriet Taylor has been with me from the beginning. Whitney Shazik, I mean, awesome, awesome producers who just do a fantastic job. I also covered the pharmaceutical industry for like a decade before this happened, and, and I'm just really lucky that I understood how these kinds of things worked, and I knew the players involved. And so, covering clinical trial data is sort of just like my bread and butter and what I've always enjoyed doing. As you guys remember from from Fast Money and all the nerdy biotech stuff, which Melissa Lee of course loves so much too. So that really helped prepare me for at least understanding the vaccine development. I mean, the epidemiology of this and the virology and just like understanding a brand new virus, that's been learning on the fly completely, but at the same time I think everybody was learning on the fly to some extent. And there are definitely some lessons that I'll take away from this experience. I really hope not to have to cover something like this again. But just to question a lot more at the beginning, you know, I was taking what public health officials were saying at like complete face value, like the World Health Organization at the beginning saying, China's being really transparent. They're setting a model for how to respond to an outbreak. And I said that on air a few times. And I remember having this conversation, actually, Contessa Brewer was like filling and anchoring and she looked at me like really? <laughs> like I was like, that's what the World Health Organization is saying. And like early on, the CDC and Dr. Fauci saying we don't want, need to wear masks. I mean, I don't know that anybody should have known. But looking back, you're like, just question, question, question everything.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. You talk about late January 2020 and the level of complacency, both by our public officials, by the public in general. I was down at the Super Bowl, I think it was the first couple days in February in Miami, and I was also in San Francisco when you mentioned at the time of that J.P. Morgan Healthcare conference. And I remember a lot of people being sick there. It was a weird flu going around, and really the stories hadn't really bubbled up just yet. There was some signs of a couple things going on in China, but it was that weekend of the Super Bowl because Friday afternoon the stock market sold off really hard. And I remember an owner at a party of an NFL team brought his finance people over to me because I'm like CNBC guy, right? Markets guy. And they said, what do you think's going on here? Is this the real deal? Do we have to worry about this? And I just said, the only response I had, and we said it at the time on Fast Money, and a guy I remember having these conversations, we'd say, a city in China larger than any city in America that most Americans have never heard of has just been shut down. And that's all I could say. And in your doc, A Race Against COVID, how Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech developed vaccines in record time, it's a brilliant tick-tock, Meg, of those early days and to that very point What you're saying about just the naivete of, of most citizens here. So tell us a little bit about how you kind of got over the hump here and, and thinking that this was the real deal. It wasn't Ebola 2014 coming to our shores.
4: I think one of the most remarkable images in that in that dock and from the early days was that crazy image of that field in china where they're all of those excavators are out there like digging and they're building a new hospital in like a matter of days and at the time jason goertz the managing editor at cnbc is that his title we were doing the 7 p.m special on the coronavirus every night because it was making the markets go so crazy. And I remember him just being like, whoa, like we need to focus on this. And so CNBC really started focusing on this like a lot earlier, I feel like, than a lot of places did. We started that special at the beginning of February and it ran until the beginning of March. And then it was like right after that, the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic and it became the biggest story. Everywhere, but we were sort of onto it early. I think because Jason was doing these 7 p.m. specials, but also like we had that experience from public health and Ebola and Zika. I mean, it's something that you wouldn't think CNBC would necessarily cover that closely, but we do. And like, I personally just am very interested in public health and viruses. And so I. I'm happy they let me do it.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head, though. I mean, CNBC, if their mission is to report on markets and the economy, I mean, there's nothing more of a black swan than you could imagine is some kind of unforeseen virus coming to our shores. So you coming at this from the lens of markets and the economy really gave you a front row seat before a lot of different news organizations had reason to cover it
4: yeah, I mean, it certainly seemed that way. I wasn't watching literally everything. And I know other news organizations were doing some great work. I mean, our Eunice Yoon, we also need to shout out. I mean, she was on the ground in China, like doing this awesome reporting. And I remember the day she showed up on air for the first time wearing a face mask. And I was looking at it. I was like, oh, wow. like, that's kind of alarmist. Like, should we be doing that? And then now it's like we all have reported from outside with a face mask on, you know, it's just normal. And and she was just following the rules of what she had to do there in China. But I mean, she was extremely early to doing a lot of that reporting. And so, yeah, covering it from CNBC, I often feel that way. It gives me an opportunity to really dig deeper into things because CNBC viewers are so sophisticated. I mean, you've got people who really know biotech extremely well. And so you get into the details of like how to develop drugs and things like that.
0: Meg, I know you went to one of those fancy liberal arts schools in the Northeast. So you clearly took a class or two in Shakespeare. So indulge me for a second. King Henry IV, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but uh, here's what I'm about to say. I remember in 0809 and Fast Money, each night I was terrified to go on air understanding that some of the things that I said were potentially going to move markets, and it terrified me. And I'm not suggesting I was a king by any stretch, but you just mentioned it before, your reporting absolutely moved markets. How much of a responsibility was that? And in retrospect, and looking back, was it intimidating at times, some of the things that you went on air with?
4: Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, I think for the most part, the things that moved the markets the most that I was reporting on were not original reporting of mine, like giant scoops. You know, Typically, it would be reporting on data coming out of a, a trial. And so the, the information existed regardless of how I portrayed it. And how I portrayed it obviously really, really mattered. But the most nerve-wracking as a reporter is when you're out there with original reporting, and you're the first person to give information. And what you say is the only information on something available. And occasionally, I would break things. But you know, the biggest things were those, you know, clinical trial results. I remember the one that was the most confusing or ambiguous was in May when Moderna's phase one results came out, because they were kind of, we had never covered like a phase one vaccine trial before, especially not for this brand new virus. And so I didn't actually know exactly like what exactly we were looking for. And what they reported was like, it was like 45 patients and they only had eight patients worth of data on what was the most important metric, which was neutralizing antibodies. Now, like a year and a half into this, we all know about neutralizing antibodies and how those levels really matter. But at the time, you know, we just were still, we were still learning and we didn't have any of the values. So we didn't know how high things were. And there was just a lot of criticism of how Moderna put out the data. And then the next day, They sold stock. And like, so there was a lot of that and learning as we went. But over time, I started to get a lot more confident and I developed more sources. So even as this information was coming out, I was running it by a ton of really, really smart people behind the scenes to make sure I did it well.
1: Let's talk about those sources without naming them. You know, in the past, I know that you've spent a lot of time, obviously you talked to companies this time around, you had to talk to a lot of regulators, a lot of independent scientists. We did investors come into the fray here. Did some of those normal channels that you might've been talking about, at, you know, kind of past trials on non-vaccines that could be, you know, market moving for individual names were investors like good sources for information because we know that they had a lot of incentive other than the obvious health reasons. But if you're a hedge fund manager managing a portfolio, you know, this is top of mind.
4: To some extent, yes, because the biotech Investing community is like insanely smart. I mean, these folks are MDs, they're PhDs, they're really, really informed and plugged in and awesome. So, a lot of those folks were really, really helpful. I would say also the main area where I leaned on the investment community and the analyst community was in sentiment and really trying to understand okay, well, these data looked really good. Why are stocks reacting this way? Or there's nothing happening. Why are these stocks going insane? You know, and just kind of trying to understand it from that lens for the CNBC audience. Whereas most of my time, I would say I spend talking to epidemiologists and vaccine experts and the folks in the companies and people in government as well who are involved in all of this.
0: What are your senses now, Meg, given everything you know over the last, you can't believe it's going on 18, 19 months. What are you on the lookout for? You're, obviously, all the headlines are the boosters the all the things that we obviously know about but what is out there in horizon that sort of caught your interest that we should be more focused on
4: Well I guess right now at this very moment there is some hope and some Perhaps indication, but I, I'm hesitant to really trust the data at this point. That are we reaching a peak or a plateau in the the delta wave here in the U.S.? Because some of the states in the South that have really been hit the hardest might be showing signs of plateauing, and perhaps the hospitalizations are going to start to plateau this week. And and that would be really really great. I think what's interesting is we all t- we try to ascribe human behavior to all of these waves and to say we understand why it's going up or it's going down, but if you talk to people like Mike Osterholm, he's the epidemiologist at uh, University of Minnesota, Sid Rapp. he's been in this forever. And, you know, sometimes it can be depressing listening to him because <laughs> he'll just be like, we don't understand why anything's happening. We don't know why it's going up. We don't know why it's going down. Anybody who says it's seasonal is wrong. And so that's why I'm hesitant to say, like, we know what's going to happen. But, like, maybe this wave is going to come down even though we're heading into fall and colder weather. Then again, maybe it's about to hit us really bad here in the Northeast. So we just don't know. So I guess I'm waiting to see near term what's going to happen with that. B, I'm waiting to see the boosters, et cetera. The approval for kids, I'm really interested to see the uptake for kids between 5 and 11 because the uptake hasn't been amazing for kids 12 to 15. They can get the shot, but like only, like I don't know, it's like 40% are fully vaccinated in that age range. So some folks are worried there won't be huge uptake for younger kids. Other people say there might be more because parents are more worried about their younger kids. But I think some folks think that we need to get kids vaccinated in order to try to start ending this. Dr. Fauci's talked about next spring being perhaps when we start to emerge from this. But who knows? The other thing I'm worried about is whether a worse variant than Delta is going to come along. I think it's really going to be hard for any variant to be more contagious than Delta and it has to outcompete Delta to take over. And so we'll see if that happens. But Delta is pretty formidable.
1: So Meg, before we had a variant and there was a lot of optimism, obviously, about the vaccines, did you ever think that we'd see this level of kind of misinformation or disinformation or, or politicization of the vaccines in general? Because, you know, for six to nine months in 2020, it was just an absolute miracle at the pace in which this was moving, right? And then finally, come last fall, cold weather, like you said, we kind of got through that second wave and the idea in the spring that that a large portion of our population would have access to these vaccines. But here we are, you know, it, it's September of 2021 and what, like mid to low 60% of our population has been vaccinated and we have access to those drugs.
4: Yeah, on an intellectual level, we knew that misinformation was going to be a problem. The World Health Organization, I remember even pitching a story idea to Jason on this for the 7 p.m. show, like way back at the beginning. They were calling this an infodemic, like back in February 2020. And they pointed out that in other health emergencies all around the world, there's always misinformation that can really mess with vaccine campaigns. I think one example they gave was in like, I can't even remember which disease it was or which country it was, but there was A rumor that if you took the vaccine, you would have bad reactions to alcohol so you couldn't drink anymore. And then like people just didn't take the vaccine and there was like a resurgence in this disease. And that's like almost seems like quaint compared to the kinds of conspiracy theories that are happening here. Like people are drinking cow deworming medicine and horse deworming medicine to try to prevent COVID instead of getting a vaccine that's gone through the FDA. So it's really, really bad. The other thing that I'll say about this is I'm not sure anybody predicted this degree of misinformation. Have you guys seen that movie Contagion? Mm-hmm. Really, really scary. But it's credited with being really accurate in terms of predicting like what could happen with a pandemic. The one thing it really didn't include, I think, was that level of misbelief or disbelief, misinformation about a pandemic, like people thinking it's a hoax or saying it's just the flu. There was one guy who was peddling a false cure, but the whole, like, pretending that it doesn't exist wasn't something that I think people... foresaw.
1: Well, in your doc, you actually had the clip of Trump to Joe Kernan at Davos saying that it's under control. And when you think about just how politicized you know, almost everything is in our country, I mean, that was kind of ground zero for this kind of misinformation war going on there. What do you make of it when you hear now that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated? And is this something that we're going to be living with? Because the way people have been dying over the last few months with access to these drugs, it doesn't really seem that the people who are holding out are going to change their mind anytime soon.
4: Yeah, I know. Does the mess is the messaging really going to work? And I think I think people in the public health world are a little frustrated with that idea, which came from the CDC, that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, especially because there are a large number of people who can't yet get vaccinated kids. I mean, we don't want this to be a pandemic in our kids. We're supposed to get vaccinated ourselves and take measures to protect them as much as we can until they can get vaccinated too. And then beyond that as well, I mean, sort of as a society, we need to protect the vulnerable and our children.
0: So as many people know, but I'll say for the folks that don't, the M in MRNA is messenger. So what do you think is exciting on the horizon for for basically that technology? Because it effectively is a technology, Meg.
4: I agree. It's the nearest term thing, I think, we're going to see in mrna vaccines anyway is going to be whether they can make a better seasonal flu vaccine and i think that'll be just incredibly exciting because mrna is really really fast and part of the issue with our seasonal flu vaccines now is it takes so long to make them they're grown in chicken eggs and so you know by the time they get those all cooked up and ready the strains might be a little different than they were when they first started making them. So, with mRNA, you can move really, really fast. And so, they're starting to test those this year. And, you know, we'll really have to see if they work as well for flu as they did for COVID. It could be that we just got extremely lucky with this coronavirus. And they might not work as well for other viruses. We'll we'll have to see. And then they're also using mRNA for personalized cancer drugs. BioNTech has been doing that since before. This is something Moderna has been working on as well. So we could see them start to move in those directions as well. But flu will probably be the first thing.
1: So the TikTok of your doc it's you breaking in, uh, you know, there's clips of almost every month over the last, let's say, year and a half or so. And because it's on CNBC, we're seeing stock prices. And back in January 2020, Moderna was a $22 stock. Guy, it just maybe doubled at that point now. So now we're looking at a $155 billion market cap company. It's being valued as if they might cure cancer, right? Guy, and you said that. I mean, Guy, t- 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 tell us a little bit. I mean, You think that this could be double and then double. Double again once we get by at least this pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's my view. I I think five years from now, we're talking about a company that has a market cap north of $500 billion, and they're onto something way beyond, and Meg's making a face, you folks can't see it, but that's just my view. I mean, they're way beyond in terms of the scope. It's a transformative technology well ahead of their time, my opinion. Now, whether or not it can be replicated by other companies, we'll see, but they've clearly put themselves in a bit of a catbird seat. That's my sense, Megan. I'm not asking you to play stock market here, but are there other players that we don't talk about that we should be talking about in this same field.
4: Well, there's BioNTech, but I guess there are a few other players in mRNA. And the big question is you know, does every major company have to get into mRNA in order to compete with Moderna? And Moderna, meanwhile, is so massive and has so much cash that it's starting to think about acquiring other companies and other technologies. And one of the things that they've really mastered other than mRNA itself is the delivery mechanisms. these lipid nanoparticles, the bubbles of fat you wrap the stuff in in order to deliver it to the body as a medicine. And there are other things like gene therapy and CRISPR gene editing that can also use that delivery technology. And so are they going to start thinking about that? And when you hear Stefan Bonsell and the other folks at Moderna like talk about the future of the company, the future of the pharmaceutical industry, they talk about it being digital and technology and AI being like, in everything they do. So it's like a different generation of companies. You've got Pfizer that's been around since the 1800s. I mean, they're obviously doing AI and big data and all of that stuff, too. But then you've got Moderna, which, you know, I think would love to see itself as like the Apple of of biotech.
1: Yeah. And I think that's where Guy's going. When you think of some of the market caps within technology and the way some of these technologies are evolving in general, it seems to be there's no real roof on where these market caps can go when you have Apple and Microsoft with a combined $5 trillion in market cap. Do you think that we're likely to see maybe some mega M&A? I don't mean Moderna maybe doing a $5 billion acquisition here or a $10 billion. Do you think we're going to see a huge Pharma and a huge biotech and really compete in this space because this could be where the best and the brightest are going within technology for the next couple of decades?
4: It's a really good question. I don't think Moderna is going to be the buyer of a really massive company because I don't think Moderna thinks really massive companies are equipped with that kind of mentality and technology that they want. But, you know, you never know. It could end up making sense for them. Whether a big pharma company feels like it needs to buy a company like moderna moderna itself is a giant now so probably not it's sort of funny like you could have thought like of moderna getting acquired at the beginning of all of this by like a Merck or, or you know some other kind of company but obviously it didn't that's an open question we haven't seen a lot of that massive m&a that really kind of characterized biotech for a long time Recently, we've got new management teams in a lot of these big companies. There's a new CEO at Merck. Ken Frazier was never a fan of massive pharma RNA. I don't know if the new guy <laughs> feels differently. There's a new CEO coming in at Johnson and Johnson. So you never know sometimes these guys want to prove themselves with a big deal sometimes they don't.
0: It's a fascinating space. And and you know, you're talking about the space in the aggregate now. So my question is obviously your focus and and I'm gonna throw a number out, eighty-five percent of the focus over the last six months, is sixteen months has been exactly this, everything we've been talking about for the last half hour. But there's been some groundbreaking news in pharma over that time as well. Biogen, for example, a few months ago. How do you find the time to properly give those stories the time and the respect that they deserve given your focus has been on COVID for the last 18 months.
4: It's hard. And I, you know, when something like this happens, like it, it's it's more difficult for a biotech story to break through the COVID stuff in order for us to do it. But Biogen obviously did. That was massive. And it was just a story I was covering for so long. I remember when they got the first phase one data on that drug and it looked surprisingly good. Uh, and then we just followed the ticks of that for years. So then I get to check back in with all my sort of biotech people, people I don't get to talk to you quite as much these days. And it's fun to like get work those muscles again. I also co-host a biotech podcast, the read out loud for stat with Adam Feuerstein and Damien Garde, And that's like a weekly check-in. Sometimes we get to talk about things other than COVID, which is their preference. So that's good too.
0: So Meg, obviously the audience knows you for the ama- and again, amazing work you've done on CNBC for the last few years. Obviously the last 18 months have been extraordinary, but what a lot of people don't know and should know is you got changed Shops, and you know what I mean when I say that you can flat out sing. Talk to me about your singing career. And it was a career. And if you're still singing now.
4: I mean, I have to say, I think the peak of my singing career was a karaoke night in <laughs> May of 2014. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. A guy, a Dummy. And I think the song was I'm Yours by Jason Mores.
0: Crazy, right? A little duet there. But no, it's a ma- you can flat out sing. Have you been able to continue? It's not a hobby. I mean, I think it's a bit of a passion for yours. Have you been able to sort of continue it? Because you are very busy right now.
4: I am. Um, no, No, my singing career seems to be over. I was in an acapella group. That's where I did most of my singing in New York. But we kind of all grew up and moved to the suburbs and had children. And whenever I try to sing to my toddler, he says, turn it off. (laughs) So I don't sing too much these days. Well,
0: Meg, it's been amazing having you join us. I appreciate you coming on the tape with Dan and myself. Danny Moses could not be here, but he's a huge fan as well. We're obviously going to post, you know, we'll put your doc link on the website. We'll obviously put your podcast link on the website. And on behalf of Dan and Danny, thanks for joining us, Meg.
4: Well, thank you guys. I miss you.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.